you are very kind even to not walk out on Crazy Man Ted, who, yes, was raised in northern Ohio, and for which this weather used to feel warm. Seven years in Jackson, Mississippi, and ten years in Arkansas has changed my blood chemistry, too. It is freezing, but we are in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 28. Um, And before we read, I want you to think about this fact, that um, how you answer questions uh, moves you in a particular direction, inevitably. Um, This is the fourth week of the semester, right? And um, you are here because you answered the question, where am I going to go to college? And having chosen Arkansas, it meant you moved away from family and friends, and you moved here, and you have a new set of friends, or you're beginning to have a a new set, you have new expenses, and a new life. Um, how you answer the question always shapes a new direction. Uh, some of you are in- asking and, you know, trying to figure out the question, you know, should I date this person? Um, can I date this person? Would this person date me if I asked them, um, who should I marry? Well, that, I mean, that, that changes your life. Um, should I go to RUF tonight? It has changed your life. Um, it's just always like that. And here's the thing. There is no more important question for you and I than, um, why did Jesus come to this earth? And how you answer that question uh, changes us and puts us in a new direction. Um, how will you answer that question? In the Gospel of Mark, people basically answer that question in one of two ways. Um, they either... Uh, begin to love him or they begin to hate him. They either begin to be drawn to him or they begin to reject him and walk away. You can't just ignore Jesus. Uh, He doesn't let you ignore him. And so you're either going to begin to love or begin to hate who he is and what he stands for. And uh, part of it is going to be shaped by what you understand he came here to do and if you understand he did it for you and so let me invite you to consider Jesus tonight from Mark chapter 1 beginning at verse 14 this is God's word now after Jesus was arrested uh, excuse me John John the Baptist was arrested Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their uh, their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets, and immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with me, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Amen. This is God's word. What does Mark tell us about Jesus? Three paragraphs, three big ideas. Get the broad brush strokes. He tells you that Jesus is the king and and he tells you what his message is in verses 14 and 15. He tells you about his disciples in 16 to 20 and tells you about his power in 21 to 28. So I want you to think about that message, uh, what it means to be a disciple, and that power tonight. In the first place, Jesus is the king. And as the king, he comes to bring a message that's designed to bring you joy. Now we've been saying this all along, but it bears repeating. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news and people tend to hear, you're wrong, you're bad, you're, you're worthless, um, and um, you've got to believe me even though you don't like me. And that is not what Jesus is saying here. Uh, there is bad news, but there is also good news. The bad news is that you are so lost, God himself had to leave heaven to come find you. But the good news is, you are so loved. God himself left heaven to come find you. And the good news here is is, uh, Jesus is using a very specific word used. um, It's a combination of two words, angelong, meaning news, and with a prefix on it that means joyful. And it's a word that says uh, news that brings joy. It was a word used back then, not in the everyday newspaper kind of way, But, for example, we have a copy from ancient history of the Gospel of Caesar Augustus. Okay? What is it saying? It's it's about his birth and his coronation. Okay, big news. uh, World-transforming events in this person. Okay? The Gospel of Caesar Augustus. Or, or another example of the use of this word is like when Greece was invaded by Persia and Greece won the Battle of Marathon for which runners were sent, from which we get the idea of running a marathon. They sent these heralds out, these evangelists out, these bearers of good news to go to other cities like to Sparta and announce, we fought for you. And we won for you. And you're free. You're not slaves. You're free. That's gospel. Okay? Something has been done in history, done for you in history, and it changes your status forever. It frees you. And so Christianity is not like so many other philosophies and religions, which is just about giving you good advice to get along well in life, but it is about bringing you the news of an accomplished fact, an accomplished event that was done for you. So this is not about do this repentance and believing thing for Jesus. 
to get something good. It's about understanding something good has been accomplished for you. And repentance and faith is the way that you receive the gift. The way that you enjoy the benefit. Um, So this is really vital, folks. The king, people tend to think, well, if Jesus is a king, then he came to expect something from me. And the point of the Bible is Jesus is a king who came to do something for me. And we were talking in a small group just the other day about how it's so easy to get those things flipped uh, around. And even in the language of Christianity in our culture, we sometimes do this. You'll hear sometimes the presentation of the gospel. Jesus died on the cross for you. He rose from the dead for you so that you can be forgiven. Now, they'll say, surrender all to Jesus and you can have this. Okay? Um, in other words, it's, it's, it's a way of subtly, not intentionally often, but it can get caught up in your heart and all confused when you hear, surrender everything for him. Give it all, give your whole life to Jesus and you can be saved. Okay, that's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus gave his whole life for you so you could be saved. Just stand back and believe. Just Stand back and see the salvation of the Lord and embrace it, okay? But look, if you're at all like me, there are all kinds of places in your heart that haven't been fully surrendered to the Lord. You know how you, you, know, how you know that's true of you? You still sin. You still don't love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself every day, which means there's parts of your heart which are still under self and are self-absorbed, self-rule, self-will. Okay? You need Jesus. And Jesus surrendered for you completely. Now, it is true that, that believing in Jesus means God changes you, and Jesus comes down to live in your heart, and like a home that Jesus is building, he's cleaning it up, he's renovating He's tacking on a room over there and a fireplace over there and a second floor over there to make it bigger and more expansive and more glorious. Okay, And and you're going to find as you get to know Jesus that he is Savior and Lord. And so when he comes to you as the king and says the kingdom of God is here, he's, he's, he's saying to you, well, if the kingdom is here, it's because the king is here. Okay, and so it's not just the message that Jesus is Savior, but Jesus is Savior and King. Okay, we need to hold those two things together. But, but, but here's the point. You and I don't make him Savior. He is that. Nor do you and I make him Lord. He also is already Lord. Okay, it's not like you get half of Jesus and embrace his saving kind of work. But you don't get the other half, which is his Lordship work. Rather, Jesus becomes for you both. And over time, the influence of his grace to you in salvation and the influence of his reign to you in his lordship seeps more deeply into your heart and spreads its influence into your relationships, your sexuality, the way that you, you uh, do school or not. Uh, the way that you love your roommate or not, okay? And if he begins to spread his saving influence, his, his, 
His grace and salvation and His kingdom lordship. So you and I do need to live, learn to live under, but you and I aren't saved by learning to live under Him. You and I are saved by Jesus who lived for you. And that's good news. Embrace it. So that's the first thing. Um, then uh, Mark tells us about um, his disciples. And Jesus here is presented to us as a king who came to gather a new community, to build a new kind of community, um, and, and a community built of the most unlikely kind of people. Okay, so um, think about it in terms of the, our world, right? Um, the prestige of a country often depends upon the quality, competence, and excellence of its ambassadors. This is why they pick the best and the brightest to represent America in foreign nations as ambassador, right? Unless you're a crony who's you know paid $200 billion to get that spot. But ordinarily, you still have to be a, a good representative of America. So in a world unlike ours, say 200 years ago, back to its founding, where you and I couldn't turn on a TV set and learn anything about nations around on the other side of the world. Ambassadors came, and all you ever knew about the nation they came from was how they spoke, what their language and dress and custom and eating habits were, right? They represented that nation, and that's why people were picked to be ambassadors who had the best of manners, the best of dress, the best of speech. And so you would think, wouldn't you, that if Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God, he would come looking for who? The best educated, wealthiest, most powerful, most influential, most well-respected. And you would be wrong. Who did Jesus come and call as his disciples? Fishermen. Fishermen who were part of that universally... Um, poorly thought of a commercial blue-collar workforce. Generally speaking, poor and uneducated, not not necessarily unintelligent, but not well-schooled because they were going to work. Uninfluential. Oh yeah, and he also then, he also picks tax collectors who we all know, everybody loves those guys. Okay, so Why? Why does Jesus come and pick what we might call the lowest in society? Why? Paul tells you in 1 Corinthians, this is why he called you to be his disciple. Because God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And he chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And why did he do that? So none of us could boast. So nobody could boast. So nobody could say, God needed me. I'm indispensable to the kingdom. You can say, however, God wanted me. God loved me. God was so gracious to me, He called me into His kingdom. But you may not boast except to boast in the Lord. You cannot boast in yourself. And I know you're a bunch of warriors here. You're like Marines. You're like the elite of RUF. Because you're sitting on a cold bench. <laughs> but then we might also say, but you were foolish enough to come to an outdoor RUF event on a day like this. So, 
Um, listen, don't think too highly of yourself is the point. What's Jesus up to? In gathering this new community of the very unlikely? Um, what's he up to? Well, way back in Genesis 1 to 3, it tells us you and I were built to live in a perfect world, right? Where relationships were perfect with God and with everybody. And everybody was supposed to get along. We were all supposed to enjoy that community. But we chose to be our own king and our own lord, and all of our relationships unraveled at that point. And life became then about me versus you, us against them. Let's gather over here and prove our superiority by not letting them gather over here with us, right? Yeah, let's make them gather over there. Brilliant, okay? So Jesus comes along, and that's the history of the world, right? Tribalism, nationalism, uh, wars, racism. You aren't like me, and I'm not like you, and so we're not going to love one another. Jesus came to build a new kind of community that exists not for its own sake to confirm the fitness of its own membership, but that would exist for him and for the sake of others. Follow me, Jesus says, and I'll make you a person who includes others in the community. Look, the church and RUF, these are not clubs looking for the prettiest with the best family. And we're not checking the number of Facebook friends you have to find out if you're worthy to be in this organization. The church is the one institution in all the world that invites everyone to belong and in which everyone shares this common belief. What? I don't belong here, but Jesus had mercy on me. So Jesus says, change your mind about the kind of community I'm gathering and then live in light of that. So I would say to you, do you have eyes to, pe- to see people the way that Jesus sees them? Or do you write people off? Or do you expect only certain types of people to be interested in him? Are you only interested in certain types of people? Do you expect Jesus to be only interested in certain types of people? Nobody is beyond his reach. Nobody is beyond his ability to love them and rescue them and make them his own, to call them as a disciple, as he did for you, if you have been called. And so Jesus gathers as the king. He gathers the most unlikely people for this new community. And the last thing I want you to think about, having looked at his message and his disciples, is his power. Okay, he's going to change everything uh, people understand about the world here. Um, As he exercises his power... uh, to fight and conquer evil. In verses 21 to 28, you have this story. Okay, crazy to our ears of an exorcism of an unclean spirit as Jesus confronts the spiritual forces of evil. Now, look, let's say this. Um, Every culture, every culture is characterized by stories and legends of a true king who will come back and defeat evil, right? There's a king who's going to come slay the dragon, uh, or who will kiss us and wake us up out of the sleep of death, or who will free us from the tower prison. Okay, this is um, 
the, the true prince who will put everything right. This is all the fantasy literature that Disney's made billions from, right? Jesus is that true king. John says in 1 John 3, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, to defeat our enemy. And so what's interesting in this passage, it says is that um, nothing about the content of what Jesus taught, doesn't tell you what his message was. Um, It doesn't tell you how eloquently he spoke. It just says that they, they were amazed at his authority, and that does not mean they were amazed at his eloquence or intelligence. It means they were amazed at his power when he preached. Even the exorcism itself is amazing. There's no magic wand. There's no ritual or incantation. Jesus just simply says, be silent, come out. And the spirits obey him. Now, we should say this. Skeptics will say, well, this was easy for those people to believe 2,000 years ago. I mean, you know, the spirit world, they confused diseases and demons. So that's why they believed in this kind of thing. You know, this isn't, a, this isn't um, a demonic spirit. This is just absolute epilepsy or something like that. The problem with believing that is if you go to Mark, the very next text is about disease, which Jesus heals. They knew how to distinguish healing from illness uh, and what's in this text. Um, but still, some people would say, yeah, but, you know, unclean spirits, uh, an a, um, invasive presence uh, in this world bent on evil? I mean, that sounds kind of like, you know, believing in aliens and science fiction stuff, right? I mean, can I really believe in a devil, a prince of darkness, an organizer, an instigator of worldwide evil? Your culture is saying, there's no way we can believe in that. The problem is, how do we deny it In the face of the last 100 years of humans slaughtering one another, tribal warfare, mass murder, genocide, serial rapists, date rapists, child abuse, sexual and economic slavery, that goes on every day in America, the the slave trade in America. How do you deny that there is evil in the world, that there is wrong in the world, and that it's pervasive. Now, in this text, I think it's fair to say that what's going... One of the... Well, let me say this. I'm not saying that this spiritual force of evil creates um, evil in those who are good. I would argue that that, uh, these spirits were amplifying and exasperating the already present evil of the heart, the the innate selfishness, pride, immaturity, fear in the heart. Kind of like this. I think this goes on all the time. Kind of like in the Lord of the Rings. Okay, Closing illustration, and then um, a couple words and we're done. Remember the story of the Lord of the Rings, right? One of the main characters does just this kind of thing. What character is that? The ring itself. I think I got this from Tim Keller, to be honest with you. The ring, he says, and I think he's right, has a distorting, perverting effect, right? It takes what's good and breaks it. So what's whole turns into shadow. Uh, So, for instance, elves turn into orcs. 
Kings of men become ringwraiths. Smeagol the hobbit becomes Gollum. It takes a trait, a dream, a vision, a hope, a desire, even good ones, and makes them obsessive and excessive for evil purposes. So Smeagol's love for the beauty of the ring turns him into an emaciated skeleton of his former self. Boromir's patriotism and love of his country, good things, become under the influence of the ring the lust for power and domination. And he becomes the husk of a noble man. Frodo, in his willingness to serve and accommodate the needs of others, becomes self-indulgent and self-pitying, and even at the end refuses his best friend Sam's assistance. So he becomes willful and independent, this guy who just wanted to serve the community and fellowship. Kings who were meant to rule and govern and bring order and peace are devoured by their lust for power and become vaporous, weightless shadows of the men that they were. This is what Tolkien is describing. Evil, twisting, perverting, distorting the one in its grip who is destroyed by it. And here's the deal. That danger is in all of us. Because you don't have an unclean spirit being living inside you, but you know deep in your heart something good has turned in on itself and become what it shouldn't be. Love becomes self-absorption. The admiration of beauty becomes the lust to possess. The desire to be loved becomes the lust to be lusted after. Enjoyment becomes addiction. Abilities are abused in workaholism. And so when Jesus demonstrates his determination to deal with spiritual forces of evil, to rid from our lives evil by his power and his authority, it's good news, friends. There is nothing, in other words, outside of your experience, nothing inside your experience, I should say, outside of the reign of Jesus. There is no pit deeper than the power of Christ to find you. Corey Tenbin once said, the highest sin and the deepest despair together cannot baffle the power of Jesus. And, and uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said it this way, if you are sitting here in the midst of despair and you think Christ cannot reach you, that you're captive to a sin that you do not think he can take dominion over, then I tell you that the one who casts out demons heals epileptics and paralytics instantaneously with a word, is here for the healing of your soul. So if your experience says to you, you are dominated by your lusts, dominated by that which is in you which is not good and you feel powerless, Jesus says, I am greater than any power and I have come to set you free. That's what I do for my people. Now the beautiful and sweet irony of the gospel is this, isn't it? That Jesus came to set us free from evil and he did it not by the exercise of his power in destroying all those who do evil because then we would be destroyed 
But he did it by giving himself in willing slavery to bondage to evildoers to be tortured by them, to be nailed and enslaved upon a cross, to become, as it were, powerless, so that through his powerlessness, he might crush evil under his foot, take out its sting and, and poison, and disarm its authority to rule in your life by his resurrection from the dead over evil. Do you know the freedom? Are you beginning to taste the influence of the freedom he designed for you? Have you begun to taste the enjoyment of the community he brought you to? Do you know anything of the joy of the gospel? This is why Jesus came. May he have his influence on us. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. Uh, We need you far more than we think we do. Uh, Forgive us in our arrogance for thinking too highly of ourselves. And we do. Teach us to need you, to know you, to delight in you, to find you to be our all in all. In your name I pray. Amen.